0: Uh, Tom said today is Family Sunday, and so normally we would be dismissing our children to Children's Church, but we're not. Uh, They get to be here with us this morning, and that's great, because we get to learn about Jesus, right? And we get to learn about Jesus together. So, uh, all the children that I normally see in Children's Church, can you wave a hand if if you normally go to Children's Church? Where are my kids? Okay, so remember, my kids, we have class rules. Okay, and adults, we also have class rules, these are for you too. Uh, the first rule is calm body, and I know that some of you adults just have some hard times keeping calm bodies, and that means we keep our hands to ourselves, we're not wiggling too much, right? But that we're calm and going slow so that we can pay attention. And then our second class rule is ready to listen. Right? That means we're not talking, because when we're talking, we can't be listening. And the third rule is ready to learn. That means we're paying attention to the teacher. Our eyes are upon me and not all around so that you can pay attention. And the last one is ready to love. Because what we need to do is everybody here is wanting to learn about Jesus. And we don't want to distract our brothers and sisters, our parents, our neighbors uh, from learning about Jesus. And so we're going to love them well by uh, doing the other three. Okay? So now that we've reviewed our class rules for both adults and for children, uh, let's turn our attention to the word of the Lord. We'll be reading from Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. It should be on uh, the screen behind me if you don't have it in front of you. So as soon as Adonisetic king of Jerusalem heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king. And now the inhabitants of Gideon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gideon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonisenech, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Yarmuth, to Yaphia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up with me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For that all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear. For I have given them into your hands; not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Bethhoron and struck them as far as Ezekiah and Megiddo. Uh, and as soon and as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Bethhoron. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as uh, Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died because of the hailstones, and the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still, at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon." And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Let us pray. Father God, as we come to this passage, we hear of great and mighty deeds that you have done. But as we look upon it, Lord, we ask, we ask that you would open our eyes to the uncertainty that Joshua may have been feeling, the doubt, the fear. And Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to see your response, to see your gospel preached, to Joshua and the Israelites, to remind them of your great faithfulness to them. Lord, as we look upon your great deeds, Lord, we ask that those deeds would move us from a place of fear and doubt and uncertainty to a place of confidence, faith, and trust. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, be with us now, speak to us through Joshua chapter 10, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, how many of you guys have ever tried to fix your computer when something has gone on the fritz? How many of you guys had computer issues, tried it? Okay, so, as you know, there are stages of dealing with uh, computer issues, just like there are sort of stages of grief. First, you just sort of <laughs> simply ignore the issue, maybe it'll go away. Uh, maybe it'll restart the lot, right? It's just restart Not there anymore? Great. fantastic. Okay, but when that doesn't work, you sort of simply resort to raging at the screen. Why won't you work? Control-Alt-Delete, Control-Alt-Delete, come on. Man, like, you're supposed to work. I paid a lot of money for you. You're not that old. Come on. Right? And then you Google the issue and try to work around the issue. Try to trick the computer into doing what you want it to do. And finally, when all else fails, you call in the reinforcements, honey, I need some help. The computer's not working. And when that doesn't work, you get on the phone to all of your techie friends and all of your computer programmer friends. So all of my computer programmers, you know what I'm talking about. I'm gonna be calling you the next time my computer's on the fritz, right? That's sort of the way this works, right? And this mirrors the way that the Canaanites respond to the problem of the Israelites. First, as we've sort of seen in our series in Joshua, they hide behind their walls like Jericho did, hoping the threat would go away. Six days around the walls, and the seventh day, the walls come tumbling down. And then they fight it out on their own, like I did. That didn't work for very long. And then the Gibeonites try to work around it, right? Through deception, tricking the Israelites into a covenant. And while that worked, It still wasn't ideal for them, because they ended up as servants. And then finally this morning, we get the call for reinforcements. And so when we pick up in verse 1, the king of Jerusalem, Adonis had just heard that both Jericho and I had fallen to the Israelites, and the great and powerful city of Gibeon had just sort of given up without a fight. Now, Adonis is not a dumb king. He knew that if a city like Gibeon uh, had fallen... And sort of thrown in with the Israelites, his city, Jerusalem, while we think of Jerusalem as being great and powerful, was actually not great and powerful at the time, with was smaller and weaker in comparison to Gibeon, And so that means that it likely didn't have any chance against the Israelites. And since all other responses had failed, Adonai decided that bigger was better. And so he called up all of his rivaling, Uh, rival neighboring kings to set aside their differences to unite against the Israelite threat. And remember, these guys don't really like each other. They're rivals. But they like the Israelites even less. And so after all, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so these five kings come together with their five armies to crush the Gibeonites for turning traitor to the Canaanite cause. And as we've seen with Jericho and I, this wasn't Ungodly response. They didn't fear God uh, and refused to fight against him like the Gibeonites did. Rather, they are squarely siding against God, pooling their power as much as possible in the fight to come. And naturally, the Gibeonites, not happy with this response, right? They are not happy. They, and so what do they do? They call for help. Because, like, five-on-one, generally not going to turn out well for you. 5-on-1 is not going to work out well, no matter how powerful you are. And so in verse 6, they call upon their new allies to save them. And now the stage is set for what God and the Israelites are going to do. And so, this is the context that we we come to, right? 5-on-1, and now the question is, what is Israel going to do? Especially now that they've been sort of... uh, conscripted to come and help the Gibeonites. They've been called upon to honor their covenant. And at this point, Joshua has two big questions that he has to answer. The first is whether or not he's going to be faithful to this covenant, and the solemn oath that he had made just one chapter before. And the the temptation is to refuse to go to Gibeon's aid. I mean, after all, the only reason why the Gibeonites weren't getting total destruction was because they played a trick on Joshua. They lied to get into the covenant that they were appealing to. And so maybe this covenant shouldn't be honored because they dealt in bad faith. But Joshua knows better. He knew to avoid honoring the covenant would be merely blame shifting. The Israelites had sinned definitively in not asking the Lord for direction in chapter 9. But besides, they had sworn by the Lord, and thus to break the covenant would be to dishonor God. Right? If you swear by him and then break it, it's not going to look good on whatever you swore by, which is God. And so there really wasn't much of a decision on this particular question. Joshua musters his troops and marches toward Gibeon, and the five armies attacking him. But the second question is whether or not the Lord was going to fight for them, now that they had sinned yet again. To make matters worse, the Gibeonite deception in chapter 9 came right after the covenant renewal in chapter 8. And this is sort of mind-blowing, right? They had spent a long time thinking about what it means to be the covenant people of God in chapter 8. Right? That covenant renewal took a long time because they transcribed the entire law of Moses onto stone tablets. And so they're doing this. They're thinking about the Lord, spending time meditating upon his law for a long time. And what's the very next thing that we get? Them not thinking about the Lord and consulting him when big decisions come their way. And so God should have been right there in their decision making, but he wasn't. Which is why they're in this mess to begin with. And so what happened the last time they sinned? The last time they sinned, they lost to a single city of almost no account. Because God didn't give them the victory. It wasn't even a powerful city with a big army. It was a piddling city with a tiny army. And now they were going up against five armies. Was God going to fight for them after they had sinned yet again? And that's not all, right? They're defending Canaanites. Gibeon is our Canaanites. They were supposed to be destroyed and wiped out in the first place. But now the Israelites are marching to defend them. Would God fight on behalf of these particular Canaanites? And this second question is really the bigger of the two questions. After all, the Israelite success against the Canaanites didn't really depend on tactics strategy, or even force of numbers. It depended on the Lord being on their side and fighting for them. But at the heart of this second question is a deeper question. And that question is, upon what does God's faithfulness to his covenant depend? Upon what does God's faithfulness to the covenant depend? Does it depend on me and my performance? Or does it depend on God himself? You see, the Israelites could have been confused uh, on this point, because when Achan had sinned way back uh, after they had destroyed Jericho, um, what happened? They lost the eye, and they didn't win until they had taken steps to get rid of the sin in their midst, to sanctify themselves, to uh, become more, uh, to be sort of pure and righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And so it seemed to point to the idea that they had to be good, to be pure and righteous, to keep on God's sight in order to win. And now they've sinned again with the Gibeonites. And the text doesn't really tell us back in chapter 9 about sort of any steps that they had taken to repent like they had with Achan. They certainly didn't sort of kill a whole family and keep big, a big pile of stones on them. Where was the repentance? We don't really see that. Though we hope that that had happened. And so maybe this was going to be I all over again. Only this time, instead of a small city with a small army, they're going up against five cities with a really big army. And so you can see how there might have been uncertainty, doubt, and fear. And all of that is confirmed because of the first thing that God tells him to do in verse 8. Look again with me uh, at verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. You see, God puts all of Joshua's questions to rest. He starts by addressing the root issue. Joshua is fearful that the Lord isn't with them, and that the Canaanites would overcome him. But instead, God called Joshua back to the promise that the Lord had made way back. In chapter 1 to Joshua. There at Joshua's commissioning, right, as the successor to Moses, the Lord said this in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Essentially, God was telling Joshua that nothing had changed. He was still with Joshua, and he was just as committed to him and the Israelites as he had been at the beginning. And so as Joshua marched toward this massive army, God answered loud and clear. His faithfulness to the covenant with his people did not depend on their righteousness and their faithfulness. Rather, God would always be faithful to what he promised. That faithfulness is pure grace. Because Joshua and the Israelites didn't do anything to disturb it, They were sinners and repeat offenders at that. And yet, while they were still sinners, God was with them and delivered them from their enemies. And he did so, in fact. Look with me, starting at verse 10. God seems to do all of the work. Sure, the Israelites are fighting with the sword, but verses 10 and 11 make it very clear that God was the primary force... In the fight against these five kings, so what did he do first? He throws the opposing army into a panic, and and then right there in verse ten, the ESV says, "Who?" Okay, he says, um, "Let me let me find it real quick." Uh, that's verse chapter nine. This is chapter ten. And the Lord threw them into panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow. If you look down at the bottom of the page, there's a footnote. And it says, it could also be or he. And what the ESV is saying is it could also be uh, translated that the Lord is the one who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon. And the Lord chased them all the way uh, to the ascent of Bethphorah and struck them as far as Ezekiah and Mechita. And so the Lord is the one doing the fighting. He's the one that is... uh, Going forth and wreaking destruction upon Israel's enemies. And while the Israelites are right there, God is the one who going to fight. And after all, we had talked about hailstones in, che- in Revelation in, um, in uh, Sunday School this morning. About hailstones being sort of a mark of judgment. Well, what do we see here? We see hailstones coming down and just destroying and wiping out. A huge portion of this army that stands arrayed against Israel, and so God does more of the killing than the Israelites do. He kills more of the Canaanites with the hailstones than the Israelites did with the sword. And so God isn't just present with them, but active. He wasn't just there to cheer the Israelites on in battle, encouraging them as as they fought, going like, "Oh, that's a good stab. That's a good parry. Good job." No, instead, he's winning the victory for them. He was doing miraculous, powerful things for the sake of his chosen people. And all of this is really a microcosm of the whole story of the Bible, isn't it? When man fell, God promised that he would deliver them, and through the ages of history, God worked to fulfill the promises that he made in his covenants with Noah, with Adam, with Abraham, with Moses, and David. And it all comes together when God becomes present and active with us, in human form, in the person of Jesus. And God was with us in a miraculous and powerful way. He was one of us, and through Jesus' life and work, God fought to save his people from their greatest enemy, their own sinfulness. And then finally, while we were yet sinners, repeat offenders, just like the Israelites, Jesus went to the cross. And there he delivered us from an enemy that we had no hope of defeating, just like Joshua had no hope of defeating his coalition of armies on his own. Even with him there, two against five is not good odds. Jesus saved us from sin and delivered us unto righteousness. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have the fulfillment that Joshua 10 points to. We weren't just delivered from our enemies, but we receive an inheritance because of it too. Joshua and the Israelites, what do they receive? They receive the promised land. And what do we receive? We receive God himself. We get to be children of God with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And here's the kicker, right? All of this we've talked about, we haven't even gotten to the most exciting part, right? That part that we've been singing about, that part that we've been thinking about. When is Frank gonna get to that part of the passage where the sun stands still and the moon stands still as well? Well, why does this happen? Joshua needs more time to kick Canaanite tail, right? This massive victory needs to be bigger and Joshua simply doesn't have the time. And so in the midst of watching God deliver um, the Canaanites into his hands, Joshua does something crazy. He asks God to stop the sun and the moon so he could have more time to defeat the Canaanite coalition. So who thinks to ask the Lord to make the day longer, right, to stop the sun and the moon? Who does that? Why not ask the Lord to send more hailstones? He's doing pretty well on his own, right? Why not ask him to, like, make them win faster? Why not ask them to send more panic, to turn the enemies back toward them so they don't have to chase after them? Rather, Joshua asks for the impossible, and he does so with confidence. And he doesn't ask for a small miracle either. He asks for a big one. Think about all the things that have to happen in order to prolong the day for Joshua. Scientifically speaking, right? The Earth would have to stop spinning. And that's a lot of inertia in the core and the oceans that ha- has to go somewhere. So the oceans are gonna slosh all over the place and there's like massive flooding that's gonna happen. And then the core is what produces our magnetic field which shields us from cosmic rays, right? That goes that goes away if it stops moving, right? So what's gonna happen to the Earth now, right? There's a lot of sort of planetary-level miracles that need to happen in order for this to happen, right? In order for God to sort of simply fulfill this one request, to make the day longer. It's kind of crazy, right? And so the magnitude of what Joshua is asking for is no small thing. And now let's step back and note how big of a change this is for Joshua. Joshua. Note how, jo- how confident Joshua was in his request. He simply, has, he simply speaks his request as a command to the sun and the moon. And so some of the commentators talk about Joshua's command over the sun and the moon as sort of foreshadowing the God-man Jesus' authority over creation. And so in this moment, Joshua is a type of Christ, pointing to the one who had the authority in himself to command the creation. And Joshua simply speaks as if he has authority, which he obviously doesn't have in himself. But such is his confidence in the Lord to to do what he's asked. And this is a far cry from the uncertainty back between verses 7 and 8. Back when he didn't know if the Lord was going to be with him. Where he was fearful and afraid of losing at the hands of this great army. And so do you see how God's gracious work on behalf of the Israelites to deliver them from their enemies and unto victory has moved Joshua from uncertainty to certainty? And it's not really surprising that Joshua, in this moment, having seen the Lord completely defeat five, five armies with panic and hailstones, is confident in the Lord, right? It's no no surprise, after having seen all of this, that he can act in confidence, He's seen seen God do the impossible. And so Joshua is confident to ask the Lord for the impossible. That's what the gospel does it moves us from uncertainty to certainty, it moves us from doubt to faith, from worry to confidence. And so this morning, what have you seen and heard? Have you seen the Lord do the impossible? Have you seen him defeat sin and death on the cross? Have you seen him make you hate sin that you used to love? Have you seen him fight for you and be present? If you haven't, look no further than the cross and the resurrection that we celebrated last week. Today might be the day that the Lord is delivering you through his miraculous power and his gracious faithfulness. And if you have seen Jesus do the impossible, as many of you claim to have seen, do you live like it? Do you live like you have seen Jesus do the impossible? Do you live in the secure confidence that the Lord is giving you the victory? Do you live according to what he has promised to you? Do you live remembering that we have been commissioned just like Joshua was back in Joshua chapter 1? And what's our great commission, right? Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20 says this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, that's Jesus, not me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of Do you hear the mission and the power that has been given to us for life? But even more, do you hear the promise of God to be with us? The same promise that he has given to Joshua. And so just as in Joshua 10, God's presence is everywhere. God has promised to be with us no matter what. His faithfulness does not depend on me and my faithfulness to Him. No, while I was yet a sinner, he saved me. Just like you saved Joshua. And so let's end with two questions. The first is Do you see what God has done for you through the person and work of Jesus? Do you see it? And the second is Does seeing God's gospel, what he has done for you, move you from doubt, uncertainty, and fear to a place of confidence, assurance, and security? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the human sort of uncertainty that comes every time we sin, that we see here in the pages in Joshua. Lord, we, we pray that you would enable us to see our sin, that we would feel just how bad it really is, just how much it breaks your heart and breaks our covenant with you. But Lord, we ask that we would not say that, that you would speak loudly through the pages of your word and through your son to remind us of that great gospel truth, that we have no reason to be afraid, for Lord, there is no condemnation now in Christ Jesus. Lord, would we see you and your cross and your gospel and the wonder of what we have been delivered to, in our lives, that it would give us confidence and assurance that we might live in power and in strength. Lord, open our eyes to see our sin and your goodness and your faithfulness, that we might rejoice in you. Lord, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.